All right, we're recording. How are you doing today, Julie? I am doing great on this fall day in Chicago. Yeah, it's uh, surprisingly here in Michigan, in Lansing, Michigan, it's uh, been kind of dreary and rainy, um, but today is nice. It's supposed to be 70 some degrees today, so um, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take yeah. the, the warm weather when I can. All right. Um, now, you are here on the podcast because you are releasing a book here soon. Um, it's on the screen, Twice a Daughter. Um, um, actually, that's the first book. That's um, the first book. Okay. Yeah, and that's uh, one that we're going to like talking about because it relates to the second book, which is called Belonging Matters, Conversations on Adoption oh, okay. and Kinship. They're, they're kind of like a companion set. Um, one is my memoir about searching for my birth relatives and Belonging Matters are essays um, about being adopted and the search and fun stories about family. So were you in the foster care system? I was not. So um, I'm older than you are, which means the foster care system in um, the state of Illinois had not started yet. Everybody, like I was adopted through an orphanage. Um, and then in the 1980s, they closed all the the orphanages in Chicago and the Department of Children and Family Services got started. And that's where the foster care system really took off in Illinois. So I'm too old to be um, part of that. But I mean, when you think about what an orphanage is, um, I do believe it's probably better to be in a family when you're starting off your life, but there's still that whole bonding issue. Um, my sister and I were infants. Um, I'm an identical twin. So we bonded with the staff in our orphanage and then got placed in a family and the adoption was um, certified by the court system like 10 months later. What is what is it like growing up in a an orphanage? I mean, because we've seen movies. Um, there's been a lot of movies on you know, the orphan, 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 be like growing up in an orphanage and what it's like, you get bullied, you almost feel like it's a, like a survival type of um, environment. Was it like that for you? Um, well, to tell you the truth, I don't remember anything about the experience because we were infants. Oh, okay. um, but what is fascinating about your question is when I was going through this process of trying to make connection with my birth family, I actually contacted Catholic Charities, who was the um, adoption agency, and hooked up with a social worker who took me back to our orphanage. Wow. And we got a tour, my sister and I together. Uh, we learned all sorts of things about what our life was probably like. Uh, they had an infant nursery, they had a toddler um, area, they had live-in caregivers and technicians, and she explained the whole adoption process uh, with the Catholic nuns that ran the orphanage. So it's a beautiful place um, on uh, LaSalle Street in downtown Chicago, which, you know, if you're familiar with Chicago, that's like the Gold Coast. Um, but it was a place where the policemen, when they had a foundling, would bring them directly to St. Vincent's. Um, and the pictures that I've seen, there's a little book about the orphanage. You know, kids stayed there for quite a while. If they were not adopted right away, they could be there through, um, you know, grammar school years. I have a brother that's two years younger than I am who was also adopted through Catholic Charities in St. Vincent's. And he was six months old. Um, when my, my parents adopted him, his birth mom tried to keep him. She was a single mom in the 1960s, which was not a cool time to be a unwed single mom. She did her best. And um, uh, so he was a little bit older when, when my parents um, had him join our family. What, what, why were you placed in an orphanage? I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that. What did, was it that your uh, birth mom or your birth parents uh, couldn't take care of you? What was the reason for that? Uh, so my birth mom was raised on a farm in Minnesota. She met my birth father when they were both teachers in an elementary school in Minnesota. Um, he, she got pregnant. He was Protestant. She was Catholic. 
at that time in our country's history, uh, particularly if you were Catholic, whoever you married needed to convert. He didn't want to convert. He also probably didn't want to get married. <laughs> so anyway, he kind of left her in a lurch. Um, she was fearful of telling her family what her situation was. I think, uh, and I believe she's correct, that they probably would have disowned her. So she and a friend took a train to Chicago, uh, changed their names. So my birth mother operated under an alias and they met with Catholic Charities and they made this adoption plan that she would, she didn't know she was pregnant with twins, by the way. So that was a big surprise to her. Um, so she made this adoption plan and she went into labor. She was living in this woman's home with her friend and uh, she never saw us. She never held us. Uh, she did name us um, and then she disappeared. So, and that was the promise back in the 19, late 1950s, 1960s was that um, you would maintain anonymity. Um, so when I came knocking on her door when I was 48, because I had uh, a health issue, she was mad. Um, she felt that her privacy had been violated, that um, Catholic Charities had broken a promise to her. She had used this alias on my original birth record. Uh, so the state of Illinois in, in 2011, which is when my story takes place in Twice a Daughter, had a change in adoption statutes. And people of a certain age, and I fell in that category, could access their original birth records, which I did do. Um, and the judge also opened my sealed adoption records, which had my birth mom's real name in there. Wow. Um, and we were able to find her. So um, she was a bit of a stinker uh, from the get-go. So we reached out to her and she was so mad at the um, intermediary and said, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Don't contact me again. And then over time, um, she did soften and she recontacted the intermediary and we got our reunion going. Um, and uh, she was very protective of my birth father's name. She did, first, she didn't want to give it to me. Um, his name was not on my original birth record, so I needed her to tell me in order to find him. She gave me enough of an accurate spelling of his last name that we um, took us a year and a half to find him. Wow. And uh, he wasn't that cooperative either. Um, my intermediary liked to, likes to say, you know, you hit every roadblock that most adoptees face when they're when they're trying to find out what their family history is. So um, I sent him a letter and he responded similarly, you know, don't contact me again, but here's your medical history, which is a bit of a conundrum because you're like, okay, you either are my birth father or you're not. He wouldn't say one way or another. I'm sure he had legal advice that told him that. Um, but the gift that he gave me was telling my younger brother and sister, you've got two older sisters maybe out there. And he told them the circumstances. And my brother, being who he is, called me on the phone. And um, we figured out that we had an, am an amazing connection. I knew his wife. Um, oh. And he probably had met me over the years and we did not even know that we were related so that's the story that i tell in twice a daughter how um how i made connection with my family and my brother is very much in my life and so is my younger sister and um, we're having a lot of fun with getting to know one another um my birth father died suddenly i never got to meet him uh, and my birth mom is still in my life, but I have a lot of trust issues with her <laughs> based on some of the things that she's done over the years. She's very protective with uh, who she tells that she was an unwed mother. Um, that's still a really big part of her personality, that shame that society put on her, that she put on herself about having been, you know, done this awful thing, first getting pregnant, um, not getting married and then 
giving up two daughters. Uh, you know, I'm a mother of four and I can't even imagine um, that that experience. Yeah, I, that's uh, that's crazy. I mean, because now like the societal norms, the way they would look at her now is with shame. People would be like, how could you give up your kids? Exactly. Um, but I'm curious to know because um, I kind of went through the same process of finding my adopted uh, or my, my biological family and the expectations like it's it's hard to know like what to expect it's hard to really put yourself in that position like what should i expect in this situation should i come at it with like full open arms should i be skeptical what was your reaction to meeting your your biological family you know like you uh, when i first sent out that letter to my birth mom and i I felt like I was going to be the lost child found, that she would welcome me with open arms. So this initial pushback of, no, I, you know, I don't want you in my life was devastating. Um, I entered a peer support group through Catholic Charities, a group that is still, because I still participate, uh, birth moms, adoptees, and adoptive parents. And I think that group helped me to develop a better understanding of the obstacles that my birth mom faced in, in getting um, to know my sister and I. Um, but over time, she did soften and she provided everything once we got together. I have family pictures, um, DNA analysis from her. So once she decided that it was okay, what what still has been difficult for her is um, that she's in a, a, a retirement community. And if my sister and I go visit her, she does not let us sign in. She wants to control what she writes in the guest book because it's such a small community. She lives in a bubble and she's still at 90 years old, does not want anyone to know she was an unwed mother. Um, sadly, um, she's not like the current times, to your point, um, embracing it and saying, I have this daughter in my life and she's come back into my life and I'm so thrilled to have her in, in part of my life. That's the reaction that we want to get from them when we when we approach them. And uh, that's not what happens, unfortunately. And I think, uh, fortunately for me, I had the support group to talk through all that, but uh, I think our expectations are are not realistic when we start off. No, I I completely agree with that statement because when I found my biological mom, it was like such a moment of relief for me. I was mm -hmm. like, yes, like I I found my mom. Like I was always a mama's boy, and then I was taken away at nine years old, placed in a foster care home, and then adopted at eleven. So at that point, I didn't have anything to do with my mom. So to find her, I was like, yes, like we can be together again as a family, and. I again thought she would, you know, be welcoming with open arms, but it was something to where like she was almost and still is. She she's stuck in this moment of like grief and um almost like she had experienced a loss that she could never recover from. Mm -hmm. It's trauma. And it's yeah. trauma. And even to this day, whenever I see her, it's uh she brings it up. She's always, you know, like, well, you know, I just couldn't take care of you guys. It, it, it's something that's always in the forefront, I guess, of every, every moment that we have together. Mm -hmm. And, and when you offer forgiveness to her that um, you understand, or you've made peace with that, how, how does she react? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've told her over and over that it, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we have better lives now. Um, we can move on. But I, I don't know. I mean, I guess she just doesn't accept it. I maybe it's because of the shame that and the um, trauma she experienced. She just can't get over it. I don't. I don't necessarily know. I don't. I, I can't really answer that question. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not inside her head. So. Yeah, and when I do see her, it's it's not very often. So, um, but whenever I do see her, it's uh, moments of sadness, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, their reaction to us is not, is so much more complicated than um, sitting down with somebody else, because when they look at us, 
they see their own shame and they see their own faults and failings. And so our contact with them is not pleasurable to them, unfortunately. And I've come to that awareness with my, with my birth mom. It's easier, it's easier to talk to her on the phone and share a nice conversation and catch up, but to physically show up is I, you can just see it in her body language. It's like, it's another reminder of something that didn't go well in her life or a bad choice that she made. And it's sad. It's sad that a person, um, just a person represents somebody's failures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and, and I can't even imagine what, I mean, your situation is different than mine, but like for my situation, I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine putting myself in my mom's position. Like she was 28 years old when she lost four children. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 30 years old. I have children and if I were to lose them, that would devastate me. Yeah. So I couldn't even imagine like what that would do to me. However, I do think that when I did have an opportunity, I would try to make the best of it. Yeah. But um, my, um, my husband was a Vietnam veteran. And when I was going through this process with uh, finding my, my birth relatives, we had a hypothetical conversation. If, if you had a father to child, while you were over in Vietnam and that child came into our lives, how would we react to it? And I, you know, I said with open arms, cause this is your child um, and the same. So I think, I think we're at different places in our lives when we can welcome things like this happening. Right, right. That actually happened to me. Um, I talk about it in the podcast where I had a child with uh, a woman and didn't know about it until he was three years old. And my, I was already married and my wife had to kind of, we had to have that same discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately for me, uh, after going to court and everything, the, the judge, because Michigan has a law where you have till the kid is three years old to establish paternity rights. And if you don't establish within that three years and there's already an established father, then there's really not much you can do. So um, because of that, I, I'm unfortunately not able to be a part of his life, but yeah, we had to have that discussion as well. And I think if you can look at the situation for what it is and just try to, from that point on, make the best of it, then I mean, that's the best you can do. Right. But there's disappointment there because obviously you're responsible and had you known you would have incorporated your child in your life and you still may be able to, I mean, look at what's happened to us later in life, we're connecting with family members. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for you. You might have to keep doing this podcast for a while. <laughs> well, I plan to, so. <laughs> but I appreciate people like you who are making a difference in this community because when I started this podcast, I started it as a way to share my story of growing up in the foster care system. And uh, I honestly, I, I started almost with kind of wrong intentions because I felt like I had been done so wrong in, in that, from that community, um, from the foster care system, from um, social services, all that aspect. So I wanted to highlight all the negative stories. Okay. But then it, uh, somewhere along the way, I started highlighting positive stories. I started highlighting people that like overcame these challenges. And then now I'm talking to you, somebody who is actively in this field, somebody who has writ written many stories about their situation what what kind of response have you had from you writing these stories from that community um well i'll try not to um lose it and start crying um when i when i first started writing this my story it was because it was crazy up and down and all these obstacles and the next step i i used five different search angels to find uh, both of my birth relatives everything from um, a, a genealogist who really broke the case in finding my birth father wow. and people encouraged me to write the book. And it was a challenge to me. I mean, I had always wanted to write, but I didn't certainly think adoption was going to be, um, the first thing that I started writing. Um, but as, as I told my story and I put the book out there, it's been out there twice. A daughter's been out for two years uh, to a person, the, emails and phone calls and uh, messenger on social media platforms are people like me, my age, I'm 64, 
who didn't know how to even go about finding out who they were. And so there's a piece of, of my story that connects with everybody. Um, some people have tried DNA and they cannot find any family history. Some people have used genealogists. Some people have used search agencies and there's some bad ones out there. I got taken uh, for several hundred dollars from an agency that really didn't do anything. So, and I share that in the book because I want people to learn from what I did right and what I did wrong. And I also want them to feel inspired that, okay, I've got this roadblock, but I'm going to get around it. I'm going to take, I'm going to try this and I'm going to get around it and try everything because the day that I met my birth mom and saw her in person, um, truly one of the best days of my life. And, and I've had a lot of good days, but that coming full circle and seeing who you came from and their physical attributes and just meeting them, I had spent five decades wondering who this lady was and why we were placed for adoption. And all those secrets got answered. And there is no reason why people like me, adoption happened to me. So I like to say it that way. It happened to me. I had no choice. Um, we shouldn't have to wait till we're middle-aged adults with kids who were looking at saying, okay, um, where those thick stocky legs come from? We should know that. <laughs> yeah. you know, whether we choose to do anything with it, we should still know where we come from. And the closed adoption system, which produced my sister and my younger brother, uh, we were giving nothing, no information, not even, um, you know, ethnicity. So here's a good example. Um, I look really Irish, freckled skin, pale, hazel eyes. I never knew I was Irish until I did DNA analysis with my half brother. The family I was adopted into, my dad was really Irish looking, um, very involved in Chicago's Irish culture. We did all sorts of things as a family. I identified with that culture. To find out I actually belonged to that culture um, biologically was a huge relief. You know, you go through life with this impo almost imposter syndrome thinking, well, mm -hmm. am I really that? I, I know I'm supposed to think I am, legally I am, um, but now I know I am. And I hope that um, that more states, like Illinois is one of the groundbreakers, there's about a dozen now of states that allow people to access their original birth, birth records. It's still so slow in coming for my age group and older. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, New York has come into the fold. I mean, every year another state is allowing us access, but um, it's a real crime. It's a very difficult thing for a young or for anybody, for an adult, somebody who, I mean, because that's one thing when I when I became an adult, I first didn't, at first I didn't care. I'm like, I don't care who my dad is. I've, I haven't seen him since I was three years old. But then as you have kids and as time goes on, you want to know these things. You want to know about your, like where you come from. You want to know about your health, your, all your health stuff. And that's how um, I ended up finding my dad was I did a 23 and me and ended up getting connected with a first, with a second cousin. And uh, then that kind of led into me finding my dad. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, you shouldn't have to you shouldn't have to do those things in order to get connected with with your with your biological family. Correct. Yeah. And I found out that's my whole story started with a breast biopsy and I ended up finding out that my aunt, so my biological father's sister had died of breast cancer before she was 40. Wow. And had I not gone down this path of figuring out who everybody was and what the story was, now I'm screened differently um, because of that family history and my three daughters are too. So my obligation was not just for myself, but for my kids, to your point. Um, as parents, we look at coming out of foster care, coming out of adoption in a different way than most people do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, by writing these books, obviously you're sharing your personal story. Um, what is your goal? Like, why, why are you writing these books? 
well, not to sell books because um, it's really hard to sell books <laughs> with today, right? Amazon and uh, so many players in the market. But um, in the United States, there's between six and eight million adoptees. Okay. And that means that those adoptees also have siblings, um, adoptive parents, and friends and family that love them. So the audience that I'm speaking to is huge. It's an international topic. It's a topic that's never going away. So any conversation that I can throw into the mix is going to help somebody like me figure out how do I better my situation? I want to know if I have brothers and sisters. I want to know what my medical history is. I'd like to have a picture of my great aunt who happened to be a Native American. I mean, those are all the things that we should have access to. And so by speaking up and creating a conversation like you and I are today, um, we're making people that are outside that little constellation more aware of a subset and the issues that they're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the best way to uh, put attention on anything is to have a discussion about it. Mm -hmm. um, and the more people that talk about it, the more uh, things that get done. I had a conversation with a friend when I was going through the search to find my family, uh, a good friend who I really respected. And her attitude about what I was doing blew me away. She, her attitude was, I was doing something wrong. I was being disloyal to my adoptive parents by seeking out my birth parents. And I, I just couldn't believe that she had that attitude. And I said, you know, I'm not being disloyal to my adoptive parents. They support what I'm doing. I have a health issue. I need information. What I'm doing is fulfilling my story. It's not disloyalty. And so those kinds of um, attitudes are out there that we need to dispel and we need to stick up for ourselves. Yeah. And search and reunion is not disloyalty. It is about the search for self, uh, search for family, the search for information. Absolutely. That was um, something my adopted parents were concerned about when I found my biological family. They thought that I was going to essentially forget about them. And I'm like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it, like, I mean, yeah. sure, I'm finding my like who I am, my parents, I'm finding them. But if anything, I have just more people that love me and care about me. Like, I'm not going to forget about you. <laughs> like, it's not going to change the, the dynamics of our relationship. Yeah, I had that same um, problem with my adoptive mom. It took her a while to come around. But when you think about it, you're, you're a parent and I'm a parent. And I remember when I was pregnant with my second child and I thought, gosh, how am I going to love another child in the same way that I love this first child? And then they're born and you're like, oh, yeah, of course. And it's the same thing with, um, you know, finding our other set of parents is our hearts are big enough to love a lot of different people. Um, and it's not an either or decision. It no. should, we shouldn't be put in the position to make it either or. And gosh, there's plenty of those stories out there, too. Yeah, I mean, and then for anybody to put those expectations on somebody like you or me or somebody who's searching for their their uh, their family is a selfish act. It is, and it's putting already more pressure on a very toxic uh, situation. I mean, it's so right. stressful. Didn't you feel like completely uh, stressed out? You couldn't think about anything else when you were trying to find your, your birth father and get your medical history? That's all I thought about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it was- uh... My family was like, stop talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I talked about it for a while. I still talk about it because it's it's one of those things that like for me, it was a surreal experience where like you only hear about these kind of things in stories, in like movies. You only see these type of, I guess, success stories in movies. And it happened to me twice on two different accounts. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the day I met my brother for the first time, uh, was incredible. And, you know, what's so interesting about not the players involved. So the birth parents have a lot of issues at play. They're not ever really going to get along. 
Um, but as siblings, we just have this need to connect and um, there, there's no obstacles in our path in the sense that we didn't cause this fight. It, it didn't, it happened, but you know, nobody has um, too much at stake. My relationship with my siblings is almost the same as the siblings I grew up with um, and the siblings that I grew up with, except my um, biological brother and sister in my life too. So there isn't any drawing lines in the sand, gratefully, because that would make it even more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you had mentioned that you have a twin sister. Mm -hmm. What what is that like? Did you know about her growing up, or? Well, we were adopted together. Okay. Uh, so we grew up together, and um, you know, being well, we were told we were fraternal twins, um, and we look so much alike. It's crazy. And when we did DNA analysis uh, 15 years ago, we found out we're identical. So somewhere along the line, that that piece of information got messed up. I don't know if it was at the hospital or the adoption agency or what, not that it makes that much difference. But as you know, from having gone through searches, it's like every time a little gatekeeper gives you a wrong piece of information, it makes you even more mad. Um, so there were a lot of little pieces like that, that I share in the story that like, why does, why do people just don't care to get this right? It makes a difference to us. Um, so yeah, it's been really, really fun. She and I worked on the search together. I wrote the book. Uh, she held my hand when I was really, um, uh, upset about a lot of things that happened with my birth mom and, and birth dad, uh, having her as like a built-in friend through life. I mean, it is a really interesting twist on being an adoptee is being raised with a full sibling. It's a blessing. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even tell you how much of a blessing it is. Um, cause being adopted is hard. Um, but you know, I, I always knew who I looked like. I would look yeah. in across the room and there she was. Uh, so we were pretty much a team in that respect, but it wasn't like growing up. We didn't really talk about it very much. Um, I think we just left it alone. I don't know if that's denial or, uh, what have you, or just being a naive kid. It wasn't really my it's not that my parents avoided the conversation i mean we did talk about it sometimes but even between she and i we would just say well what do you think happened you know and then we, we invented this fantasy that our um birth parents were high school sweethearts and she was the cheerleader and he was the head football guy and you know they're going to college and they couldn't get married and so that was our little fantasy that we latched onto. Um, you can imagine <laughs> when we found out what really happened, we were like, huh? <laughs> so they, my birth mom was 26 years old. She was an adult. She wasn't a teenage, you know, um, back of the car situation that she got pregnant. She was, she was an adult. They were coworkers, they were educators. And so to me, the, I think I like the teenage fantasy one better. <laughs> um, than the reality situation because I, I feel like they could have made a better decision because they were adults, but they didn't. Right, right, yeah, and I mean, obviously they weren't planning on on it coming back on them. <laughs> no, and and I think um, people think twice now about hiding secrets because they do come back around, especially with DNA. Yeah, um, I have several friends that didn't realize until they did DNA that one of their parents isn't really their biological parent. Um, and that, that's a whole nother identity issue to face when either you weren't told correct information or the parents didn't know. I mean, right. right. And, and then that goes back to who do you, who do you claim as your parents, which is, you know, some of the essays that I write about in, in this next book coming out next week is, you know, the family that we claim, sometimes is not even a biological uh, relative. So I had an aunt and an uncle, they weren't my aunt and uncle growing up and we were close to them. They took us on trips with them. Uh, we went shopping, we, we did all sorts of fun things. And I consider them my family, even though 
you know, they're not. So uh, kinship and family is a really interesting conversation. Um, and I'm sure you have people like that in your life that you consider family, um, but you're not related to them. Absolutely. There's so many people. <laughs> and I think that for me, uh, coming from a situation uh, of being adopted and being forced into a situation in foster care, but being uh, forced into a situation where I had to accept other people as my new family, Mm -hmm. It gave me an opportunity to look at other people as with open arms and as a way to be like, oh, I can accept you too. And now you're my family. And so like now, I mean, there's so many people like you had just mentioned that I, I look at, I mean, even friends where I'm like, that's like my brother, you know, or that's like my, that's like a family member. <laughs> I would do anything for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now uh, you had mentioned that you were a part of, you grew up, as part of like the Irish community in Chicago. Um, so you kind of have like a, you had like a sense of identity growing up uh, and you were able to associate yourself with a, a group of people, but did you ever find yourself like struggling to, like, I remember when I was in, uh, went, went into foster care, I went to a whole new school, had to make new friends. And then everybody's asking me like, where'd you come from? Like, who's your parents? Like all these different questions. And then you, you kind of feel like the outsider where you're not, you know, that you're not like, you feel like an imposter, I guess, essentially. Yeah, oh, definitely. You do feel like an imposter. So um, my dad had got my sister involved in uh, the St. Patrick's Day Queen Festival in Chicago. And um, I, I made it onto the, the Queen's Court one year. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, did, you know, guilt did I just take a spot away from somebody that really is Irish and deserves to be here or do I deserve to be here? And I was a teenager at the time. So I just kind of went, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> but to my relief, I did find out that my um, ancestors are Scotch Irish. The other thing I found out, which is, goes back to your question about identity um, on both sides of my biological families, I have native American. Uh -huh. a big a Native American. Um, so my birth father was one quarter Chippewa and there's different Indian tribes on my birth mom's side. Not anything I ever dreamed I would find. And I'm still struggling to put that in my sense of identity. Um, and I think that's part of the problem with foster care and, and adoption systems is we don't always grasp all of who we are and we might want to latch onto those things. I find it incredibly interesting to, to be Native American. However, back in the, the era uh, in which I was born, people tried to hide that. So if you were white and Native American, um, maybe five out of six kids would look white and one would look Native American. And so, the, you know, they would kind of hide that fact. It wasn't um, wasn't something so much to be proud of to be a, a mixed breed. Now I understand that with my my birth families, I, I get where they're coming from with that. But I'm I'm embracing it. Um, I wish that my birth father's name was on my birth certificate because then I could claim that I am legitimately Native American and I am like you know, one, one 13% or something like that. Um, so it's, it, it's sad. I mean, that we can't identify with our true ethnicity till we're older in life. Yeah. And I mean, by that point, you've already established patterns and the type of communities you're involved in. And so it makes it more difficult to get involved into the communities that you learned about. Um, that's kind of something I, I, uh, struggled with too because my dad is from honduras so that whole side of the family who immigrated here immigrate that's immigrated right yeah yes um they immigrated here they all are from honduras they're honduran and so i'm half honduran and so that's something that um i never really i mean i knew that i was hispanic but it's not a culture that i was really involved in until even now i'm not really that involved but okay. um, i i know more now than i i did growing up and I didn't, I wasn't involved in that community whatsoever. So, um, more not, it's funny. Like now I talk to, um, 
talked to different people on the podcast and I just had a, a Latina lady on who was promoting a, an event here in Lansing. And she's like, are you Hispanic? And I'm like, yeah, I'm Hispanic. And she's like, oh, you don't talk like you are. And I'm like, well, I, I grew up Caucasian. So yeah. that's kind of who I identify more with now. But the gift that you can pass on to your children is that they have that culture in um, their background and they can choose to uh, investigate it and explore it and think what they think about it. So I think right. I think that's a beautiful thing that you know that and that you're passing that knowledge on to your kids. Absolutely. What kind of influence did this your your whole story have on your kids? Oh, gosh. So when I was going through um, the ups and downs of finding birth mom and rejection and finding birth father and rejection, my kids were mad um, that somebody would be treating me like this. They thought that I deserved better. Um, my adoptive mom was, uh, I'll use the word stinker again. Uh, <laughs> she wasn't full in. You brought up the point, you know, she thought maybe I was, she was going to lose two daughters to this other set of parents. Uh, she did come around and we got through all that. But um, so my kids were, they were mad. They didn't want to see me hurt. Um, and I respect that. It also changed how they dealt with their grandparents on both sides. Uh, my son did meet his uh, biological grandmother, my birth mom. And I think he enjoyed that experience. Um, but I'll, I'll share one other story. So my when my book, Twice a Daughter, came out a couple years ago, uh, I had advanced reader copies and I had given them to all the kids and I was on a plane with my son and he's reading the book and I look over at him and he is crying and I was like, honey, what, are you okay? What's the matter? He goes, mom, I just had no idea you went through all of this. I'm so sorry. And I said, well, you didn't know because you were in college. I mean, you weren't living the day to day with me that I was going through this. So I think the gift of writing your story and writing your thoughts down, because a lot of things come out when you write something down, is the our children gain some knowledge about us, um, about our struggles. They look at us in a different way, and it creates a back to the that topic creates a conversation that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of um, what kind of impact did this have on your life writing the books? did it did it change the way you thought about the whole situation were you able to kind of put everything back into perspective by just by simply writing oh the book has done amazing things for me as a person because i was my last child was getting out of the household i was going to be an empty nester all of a sudden i'm immersed in this adoption search i'm writing about it people are listening to me talk about it um and now I have this cause in life, this purpose. Uh, I get up every day and I think, what am I going to write about today? What do I think about? Um, I think about belonging all the time because I think that's a fundamental issue for everybody. We're always trying to figure out where we belong. Do we belong at the the cool guy's lunch table? Do we belong in this sorority or fraternity? Um, do I belong on your podcast? You know, I mean, we're always trying to figure out how we belong and how we fit in and how comfortable we are with that. Right. Um, and that I think is fundamental, regardless of age, ethnicity, anything is this I sense of identity and sense of belonging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you get do you give speeches or anything? Do you talk to uh, College. I do. I talk to um, I talk to a lot of book clubs. I kind of like the smaller environment where we can have a conversation versus me speaking at to somebody. Um, and I do like to talk on podcasts. And I will talk in front of, you know, like uh, Catholic Charities had me at an event recently uh, at my orphanage, and I did speak wow. to a crowd of about eighty people about my story and. Um, the connection that I had with the orphanage. So yes, I do speak um, quite a bit about my story. It drains me though. I don't know how you feel about it. It's like you, you, you share a personal side of yourself and it is exhausting. Very, yes. Uh, yeah, I've done a couple public speaking things and every, every time afterwards I'm like, whew, 
Yeah. But you have like you're reinvigorated because for me to share my story, it's such an honor. I'm like, I feel so good and so happy that I'm able to use my story in some sort of small way to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came across um, actually this woman contacted me through uh, social media and she's a twin and she's adopted. She was adopted with her twin. And we had this whole conversation. Um, we've become really good friends um, about going to interview her for my blog that I write because November is National Adoption Awareness Month and that's next week. And um, so that's one of the stories I'm gonna spotlight for, for my blog. It's um, an important month for foster care too, as you know because it puts the national spotlight on the numbers and numbers of kids that are still in the foster care system waiting to be placed in a family. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What is, um, what is your goal with this book that you're going to release and when it, when will it be released? Uh, it releases on the first November 1st in time for national adoption awareness month. It's, I look at it as a companion piece to my memoir, twice a daughter, there's a lot of things that I bring up in my story um, that I, because of the scope of the book, I couldn't explain all of it. Uh, so the essays that are in Belonging Matters go into things like what happened when my birth mom denied me for the first time? You know, what were the issues related to that? What were the tough conversations I had with my adoptive mom about finding my birth mom? So I have essays um, on those topics in in this book that comes out next week. Wow, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get copies of these books. <laughs> now, for somebody that's listening to this, somebody who is maybe going through the process or doesn't necessarily know how to even get this get started in in the search for their their biological family, what would you have to say to them? Uh, well, start with an adoption agency, a caregiving organization, see if there's a social worker that you can start talking with. Um, they're very sensitive to the issues surrounding a search. Um, make sure that you are in a really good place in your life before you tackle something like this. For me, I was a very healthy marriage. There wasn't any complications going on and it stressed me. Um, so be prepared to be stressed and also be prepared to pull back and take time out, um, take a mental health break, go back at it when you're ready. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, it's tough stuff. You really have to dig deep and pulling away from it is not a cop out. It's just saying, I'm not ready to deal with this situation right now. I need to heal a little bit, I need some more tools. Um, and go out and get those tools. Don't be shy about asking for help. There's plenty of people like me. There's plenty of um, organizations on um, Facebook. Uh, there's a wonderful one called National um, Alliance of Adoptive Persons and it's NAAP United. So it's birth parents, adoptive parents and adoptees all in community. They have support groups virtual support groups. Um, there's plenty of support out there for people that are thinking about finding out who they are. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And um, unfortunately, though, they're not as highlighted as they should be. Um, because when I was searching for my for my biological um, mom, I didn't have any tools I had, I just did Google searches. That's how I found her. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I had had those those services, if I had help, it would have made the process a lot easier for me. I agree with you, David. I think that those tools are probably more prevalent in the last five years. Okay. Uh, maybe one of the good things that came out of COVID was we had to we had to develop uh, all this virtual online support systems. Yep. So I think that they are there more prevalent ready than they were when I started out. I didn't know where to begin either. I didn't even really know people that were adopted because nobody talked about it. And now, like I went to a high school reunion um, a year ago and I ran into a guy and we were talking and I was telling him about my book. He goes, what? I, I didn't know you were adopted. And, I, and he was adopted. He's like, I'm just getting started with this. And I'm like, 
okay, well, this is what I know. This is who I can connect you to. And uh, we've become really good friends over this thing <laughs> that we didn't know we shared when we were in high school. So um, yeah, the conversation starters, you just never know what they are. I remember when I was in high school and this has stuck with me ever since I was talking, talking to a girl um, in class one day and I was telling her a little bit about my story, some of the things I was going through at home at the time because my adopted situation was not any better at all. It was a terrible situation, but I was sharing it with her and she's like looking at me. She's like, I could, I would have never guessed. I would have never known that ah. by, by looking at you that you had gone through all, all, all of these different things. And that's stuck with me ever since because now I'm like, I don't, I, you shouldn't, you shouldn't let your situation define who you are as a person, which is, I guess, good that she couldn't tell that about me. Yeah. But in the same sense, you shouldn't shy away from it. You should embrace your story and allow other people to know and, and talk about it because that's how things change. That's how people change their ideas about things. And that's how people develop ideas. And, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, Oh, I agree with you. Um, you know, a lot of folks didn't know that my sister and I were adopted because, you know, the first thing that they see is two people that look alike. They want they want to talk about how cool it is that you have a twin. And so the adoption conversation hardly ever came up. Um, and I think to my credit or discredit, I kind of hid behind that. I hid yeah. behind the twin thing and didn't really explore the adoption thing until I was forced into it. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we, our brains protect us from what might be harmful. And I don't think I was ready to deal with any of this until I was uh, a middle-aged person. Well, it's a shameful thing too, for a young person to have to tell their peers at school, like I was adopted. And then they're like, why were you adopted? Was your mom? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the other thing is to say, well, I don't know. I don't know why I was adopted. I don't know anything about those people. And that's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody else is in that situation. Why, why are we? And it's, you don't want to fess up about it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Julie, where can people find your book? Um, it's available. Both books are available wherever books are sold. Um, you can find them on Amazon, of course. Both are available in all formats, including audiobook. Um, I like to shoot people over to bookshop.org, which supports the independent bookstores. So if you don't mind waiting a little longer to get the book instead of two days, it might take four. You'll you'll support your local bookstore. Very cool. Thanks for doing the podcast. It was a, a lot of fun to have you on and hear your story and to uh, kind of, I guess, bring some awareness around this. Um, I would love to have you on in person sometime if you're- uh, I would love that. Um, I live in Northwest Indiana uh, most of the summer. So Lansing's not that far. I think it's like a two hour drive. Yeah, we can yeah. make that happen. Yeah, let's, let's, do, let's plan something sometime. Okay. I'd love it. Thanks for making the time for me today. This was really fun. Absolutely. And I, I wish you nothing but the best and uh, congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Thanks yep. again. Yep. Thank you.